It's Monday, February 7th. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. COVID hospitalizations are back under 1,200, a number not seen since mid-December. Today is National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day. We'll hear from a doctor and advocate on how racial disparities affect access to treatment. Plus a conversation with Baltimore's Director of Homeless Services on ongoing and future efforts to get people safely sheltered and rehoused. It's The Daily Dose from WYPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Some good news when it comes to the pandemic in our state. Fewer than 1,200 people are hospitalized with COVID-19 in Maryland. The state hasn't seen a number like that since mid-December, when the Omicron variant started to spread. The State Department of Health reported about 770 new cases today, and an average positivity rate of just over 6%. This week is Healthcare Appreciation Week. Governor Hogan is encouraging Marylanders to nominate a healthcare worker who has gone above and beyond in recent months. Hogan says nominations can be submitted at governor.maryland.gov. Baltimore City State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby will be back in federal court in the next few weeks as she prepares for the start of her perjury trial. Mosby made her first court appearance on Friday to face charges of making a false statement on a loan application. Mosby's attorney is pushing to have the case go to trial sooner rather than later. A decision on when the trial will start is expected sometime this month. Today is National Black HIV AIDS Awareness Day. According to information from the CDC, African Americans account for a higher proportion of new HIV diagnoses and people with HIV compared to other races and ethnicities. Racism, HIV stigma, homophobia, poverty, and barriers to health care continue to drive those disparities. On Friday, on the records, Sheila Cast had a conversation with Dr. Sarah Schmosley the medical director of Thrive, and Eric Anderson, a Ryan White eligibility specialist at Thrive. The Thrive program at the Institute of Human Virology at the University of Maryland Medical School is also a medical practice for people with HIV and other conditions. Dr. Schmosley says that could be anyone who is living in Baltimore City who is sexually active. That there's primarily two groups of people that we care for at Thrive. So uh, young Black men who have sex with men have the highest rate of new infections across the country and in Baltimore. Um, and so those really represent the new patients coming into care. And then kind of on the opposite end, we have older adults living with HIV that are long-term survivors that were diagnosed in the 80s or 90s. And this means that essentially if, you, if you're living with HIV, you have accelerated aging from the HIV infection. And we see that people living with HIV have more medical comorbidities than others. Um, and they've really dealt with stigma that was so toxic at the beginning of the HIV epidemic. They've lost friends. They may be socially isolated or lonely. Um, and many people didn't expect to live as long as they have. And so we're now dealing more with aging-related comorbidities than the HIV itself. There is still no cure for HIV AIDS. But Dr. Schmosley says there have been great medical strides in treatment of those living with the disease. Um, but we also have patients that are struggling. So the socioeconomic determinants of health that make groups and individuals vulnerable to HIV, if they're still ongoing, those 
those can really interfere with someone's ability to fully engage in their medical care and to even take that one pill a day. And so this is why we aim to provide such comprehensive services to help patients address all of those needs so that they can live well with HIV. Eric Anderson, the Ryan White Eligibility Specialist at Thrive, says the Ryan White Act addresses some of the racial disparities and access to treatment. You know, there's a deep cost of inequality. And the reason that there's a National Black um, HIV Awareness Day is it was to increase the education, the testing, the community involvement, and the treatment um, of the Black communities. So because there was a lack in, in the um, African-American community, um, Ryan Wright really comes in place because sometimes just for um, people to access insurance, which seems easy for a lot of people, um, they have problems, even if it's medical assistance to get it. And so Ryan White is actually a bridge to treatment until we're able to get people insurance. It's, it's, a, it, it's a way to level the playing field when it comes to being able to get people to the clinic for trans, with transportation. It, it really helps people to be able to take your medicine. Um, Maslow hierarchy of needs, the, the um, Physiological needs are most important. So if I'm if I'm hungry and I don't have a place to sleep and um, I have to worry about childcare and, and I have to worry about food, HIV medication and, and enhanced care is not going to be high on my list. So Ryan White really kind of helps with some of those psychosocial issues that will um, produce non-adherence. Dr. Schmosley says when it comes to what impact the COVID-19 pandemic has on HIV AIDS testing and treatment, She's looking at how people's sexual habits changed. So what are the effects of lockdowns and social distancing? Were people seeing each other less and having less sex or fewer partners? Or was it the opposite? And when everyone kind of went stir crazy, there were you know more sexual interactions, more transmission. The one thing I can say for sure is that testing and outreach have been a great casualty of the COVID pandemic in Baltimore, probably everywhere. Much of the HIV testing done in Baltimore is at the community level. So at health fairs, testing vans, community events, churches, et cetera. And HIV testing is critical to any epidemic because you have to know that you're living with HIV in order to get into care, to get on medication, and to have your HIV virus suppressed to a level that it can't be passed on to sexual partners. The Thrive Program at the Institute of Human Virology at the University of Maryland Medical School is located at the UMMC Midtown Outpatient Tower. You can hear Sheila Cass's entire conversation with Dr. Sarah Schmosley and Eric Anderson by going to ontherecord at wipr.org. Before the pandemic, people experiencing homelessness in Baltimore relied primarily on congregate shelters, where people slept side by side and shared bathrooms. Now, in addition to those congregate shelters, Baltimore is using five hotels, where people can shelter while physically distancing. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, has been reimbursing the city for the cost of the hotels, but those payments are set to expire in April. I recently spoke with Irene Augustin, the director of the Mayor's Office of Homeless Services, about the future of those hotels and the ongoing efforts to keep people sheltered from COVID and the cold. I want to talk about the timeline for demobilizing hotels in Baltimore City. Um, How do you hope to do that over the next year or next months, whatever the timeline is, um, without putting people on the street? 
our goal is to house as many people coming out of the hotels as we can and to get them connected to housing so that we're not returning individuals um, to the street. And so our focus with our efforts, and we've started this actually over the fall, is to really focus on rehousing. For, for some individuals, it does take a little bit longer. Um, and our work is in why we are reinforcing a progressive demobilization schedule to really work to demobilize all five hotels is not something that um, from a really a staffing perspective or one, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a lot to do at one time. Um, we are still working out um, in terms of the timing um, what that will actually look like, but we want to make sure that as we transition individuals, um, hopefully to their home, um, but if they need to transition to another uh, placement within our homelessness response system, that we're able to do that very um, thoughtfully and strategically because um, there are a lot of people um, that will need to transition, and so it does take that time and care to do it. So those that you don't manage to rehouse, my understanding then is they're going to be placed in shelters. Would those shelters be what is maybe remaining of the hotel shelters or the permanent um, congregate shelters that we've had um, before COVID? So as those hotels demobilize, we are also looking to what we're calling reinflate the system. Um, and um, it's, I think, very much known within our community um, that there were two congregate shelters that um, we are um, in the city is, is looking at replacing with non-congregate shelter. And what that looks like um, is potentially uh, looking at the purchase of um, hotels that are for sale and converting that into um, non-congregate shelters. So very much the model that we have right now with the COVID response, um, utilizing hotels for shelter space, we look to have that supported long-term within our community. Right. So demobilizing the hotels in terms of what we have right now, but setting up a system using some hotels in Baltimore as shelters in the long-term. Yes. So there's a, you know, there's a lot going on at once, <laughs> but that's why we have to do a phased approach in terms of demobilization, because we also are working to um, create non-congregate um, uh, shelter within our system. Right. Um, the FEMA reimbursement money, you mentioned it runs out April 1st. Um, I'm imagining the shelters will start demobilizing after that. Rehousing, like I said, is first and foremost our goal. And so that process it has never stopped um, throughout all of this. And so we will continue to make sure that's the focus. In terms of demobilizing, you know, it, it's not that, oh, your FEMA reimbursement um, ends for one and, you know, um, and people just need to leave. That is not the approach that we want to take. And so that's why it's important that as we, you know, work with individuals um, and work with them on rehousing, that we continue to do that work. Um, but we also know that um, uh, uh, we have to be very thoughtful in terms of what that demobilization looks like. And we don't. And if we don't start that work now, um, then for one, there is high potential for individuals to be uh, returned 
to the street. And that's not our intention and that's not what we want to do. I'm curious, um, what is it that's making the rehousing um, possible? Um, It seems like that's something logically that would have made sense to do earlier in the pandemic. Is there a specific maybe source of money that's coming in now that's making that a more practical plan? Uh, So uh, we, uh, under MLHS and through um, the help of consultants have worked out a strategic investment plan uh, and centered community engagement. Um, and, and, you know, we've, we received feedback from providers, from our continuum of care, from people with lived experiences, um, a variety of groups to help um, create the strategic investment plan, which, um, which helped shape um, the, re- the requests uh, we made for ARPA funds. Um, and so right now that is um, under review um, with the city of Baltimore and the Office of Recovery Programs. And so um, some of the funds that we requested um, will work to support um, uh, standing up non-congregate shelter, will support uh, demobilization of the hotels, and then also support working um, and providing resources for uh, rental assistance and for working with the housing community and landlords um, so that we're able to connect people to safe, affordable uh, permanent housing options. These all come into play and are all part of this transition. And so um, uh, the request for uh, funding support through ARPA um, is very central in terms of our um, plans to um, uh, to demobilize the hotel site set up uh, in response to COVID, and then to transition our um, homelessness response system um, and um, to provide housing resources as we move forward uh, in our our work to end homelessness. So it, it very much mirrors the transition that we want to see. Like I said, our goal is to house as many people as we can. Um, we do not want to return individuals homeless to the street, but uh, be able to uh, utilize the really the resources we have at hand um, to house um, and to uh, help people uh, connect to housing and the appropriate support services. Do you happen to have a breakdown of how much ARPA funds, first off, that you have set aside or are hoping to get um, as an office, and how much of that money is going to be used to set up, as you said, the permanent hotel shelters? Sure. So right now, the requests um, that uh, that have been made really cover the span of you know uh, six really targeted areas, as identified through the work we've done through our strategic investment plan. The total number in our request um, was $126 million, and you can find that all um, in the strategic investment plan report that we put out, and it's on our website. We would love to have the total amount, but we know that right now there's plenty of proposals in front of the Office of Recovery Programs. In terms of the requests we put in there, it was very much based on where um, there are gaps within our system and prioritized with feedback from our community. Um, And so um, while the ARPA funds um, really will help us to 
um, and provide us the resources to really kick this off. Um, I think the more important thing to impress upon the strategic investment plan um, is that there, you know, for us to really um, uh, to set the foundation and to see reductions and to see us um, making progress towards ending homelessness, um, that, you know, that's just the start and we have to continue to work um, as a community um, to make the appropriate investments in that. Um, and so ARPA definitely will help kick this off. Um, but we also, you know, as we move forward and really want to work as a city towards ending homelessness, that means, you know, bringing partners closer to the table and being strategic about these investments um, as we move forward. So to confirm um, the ARPA money, it's you've requested for it, but it's not necessarily readily available yet. Yeah, it has to go like all the other ARPA requests has it goes through a review process. Um, and this is administered through the Office of Recovery Programs. So it's possible that you might not be able to get those funds and might have to look for funds elsewhere? Um, I would say that the the requests we made um, as it re in regards to ARPA um, really is a um, portion of our strategic investment plan. We knew going into and crafting that, that we would we would be seeking out other uh, forms of investment as, as well as ARPA. I've spoken with some advocates who've experienced homelessness or are homeless, and they've expressed frustration with previous offices saying there was a lack of urgency. What would your response be to kind of that criticism? What, in your view, would be the main hurdles to realizing this mutual goal of ending homelessness? Um, so I can't speak to the past administration, but I can uh, speak to really my stance on this. And, and when I came to Baltimore, um, you know, and I, and I said this um, when I was able to speak to the mayor's office and to uh, other community leaders that I, I would say helped in my interview process, um, ending homelessness is solvable. Um, you know, it takes, uh, it, to me, it really um, uh, takes focus and to make sure that we prioritize um, in the right way. Unfortunately, and we've seen this, I think, not only in Baltimore, but in many cities, um, you know, the reality and um, the reality of this um, is, is just uh, people that are experiencing homelessness um, the, the inequities um, that happen within our community, um, the institutional racism, um, the discrimination, I mean, those are all very real and they impact um, people that are highly vulnerable. And I would say people that um, are experiencing homelessness, unfortunately, um, really have experienced that and have, and, and I would say have largely fallen through the cracks. Um, to me, any kind of supportive community really looks at how we um, look at this very, um, I would say, this, this issue at hand and figure out how do we work together um, to solve this. Um, for many people that I've encountered uh, through the work that I've done um, for the past, say, couple of decades, while their circumstances may be a bit different, one of the things that I found in all of this is, is really uh, when I see someone just fall, um, I would say, um, 
uh, fall deeper um, and um, do experiencing homelessness, it, there's this lack of support um, there. And it could be for a variety of reasons. It could be that they lost their family or their friends and they're really alone and don't know where to reach out for help. Or it could be they burnt their bridges um, with their support network. Um, or people could just be scared to ask for help. Um, the other side of this is having a system willing to receive um, and really help someone walk through this process. And, um, you know, I know I haven't been in Baltimore for a very long time, but one of the things that has become very apparent here and um, one that I want to work with the community on is that this community has also gone through a lot of trauma. And I think, you know, the individuals that you may have spoken to, like, um, that you spoke to, uh, you know, the trauma is very real. And, you know, when you go through that amount of trauma, especially when you've, you've um, asked for help or tried to seek out help and it doesn't come as easily, it's easy to really see kind of, you know, um, that sense of hopelessness and might not want to ask for help anymore. And so we, we have to change um, how we do services. Um, and we have to, you know, realize that, um, you know, as a system, like, how do we reach people experiencing homelessness? And how do we quickly respond and get someone into housing? Um, uh, the issue of chronic homelessness um, really is, uh, is a failure in the system. And that means that people aren't able to get help um, quickly or the right type of help. And we need to actually take the time to um, dive deeper into that and figure out, okay, what's broken and how do we fix it? And that's more than just the city doing their role. It's everyone coming together. We all play a role in ending homelessness. And I think we have to realize that as a city to be able to turn the page on this and have a proper support system um, that will help individuals. I know it's hard to predict or maybe even hope like for outcomes in the future given the pandemic, but um, maybe fast forward to next winter. Um, what do you hope will change about homelessness by then? Um, what do you anticipate will change? I want to see our homelessness response system be able to um, not only to look at how many people we connect to housing, but really how quickly we're able to do that and to look at our efficiency and our ability to get individuals connected to housing. I would like to see our community um, really partner with our healthcare system um, and um, not only from the mental health or behavioral health side, but also from the medical side, because um, a lot of the challenges that we see, um, especially for those on the street, um, we know that once they're in housing, like their health needs don't stop and we need to make sure that we have those partners there um, and that they continue to be um, at the table. And then it's also to look at, you know, how do we help um, support individuals in terms of their ability to sustain their housing, meaning that um, uh, working with um, our partners on the employment side um, and, and to ensure that as we're able to connect individuals to housing, that they're also um, connecting to jobs 
um, and those at livable wages so that they can um, sustain their own housing. Irene Augustin is the director of the Mayor's Office of Homeless Services. Uh, Director Augustin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. We're always happy to hear from you, and we'll be here for you again on Wednesday. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Big thanks to my colleagues on the WYPR news team, Rachel Bay, John Lee, Joel McCord, Emily Sullivan, and Callan Tanzel suddeth Our digital content director is Jamila Krempel, and our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. Stay healthy, stay sane, and stand together. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Thanks for listening.